But I do ask you to take your Bibles out and turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians. This morning we're going to begin a brand new series as we return back to the Apostle Paul's letters, the Apostle Paul's writing to this small fledgling church in the northern Macedonian city of Thessalonica. Most of you hopefully will remember that at the beginning of this year of 2021, in the late winter and spring, we actually went through verse by verse all of 1 Thessalonians, the first letter Paul had written to them. And now we're going to turn our attention to this second letter. And this series will take us, unless the Lord intervenes, it will take us all the way through December 5th. We're looking at 12 weeks spending in these three chapters. When we get to the next Sunday in December, we're going to do a three-week series during Advent called The Thrill of Hope. And we're going to look at that as we move towards Christmas. I've entitled this series, these 12 weeks, Settled in Hope. Settled in Hope. And I landed on this series title actually months ago as I was reading through this letter and preparing to outline it to preach here in the fall. I landed on it from what is really the very heart and the very theme of this letter. And we find that in the opening verses of the second chapter. And I draw your attention there. As he's writing this second letter to these beleaguered disciples in Thessalonica, notice chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Here's what's going on. These Christians are looking at the world in which they live, They're seeing all the hostilities, the difficulties, the oppositions, the turmoil, the uncertainty, and in fact, the outright disdain for Christians in culture. And then they began to remember some of what Paul had taught them about, quote unquote, the end times. What he had taught them, both in person when he was with them, and then also in this first epistle. And they began to have some kind of disjointed convoluted understanding about the return of Christ, about the end times, and they apparently had become shaken. They had become alarmed in their mind and in their thinking. And Paul is writing to them, and he's asking them, don't be shaken. Don't be alarmed. Don't be unsettled. He's saying, be settled in hope. And I would say, what a timely word for us towards the end of 2021. That is, so much is happening in culture, in society, in the world around us that we could become uneasily shaken. We could become alarmed. We could become unsettled. Now, as we consider 2 Thessalonians, we will consider what is perhaps the clearest and most concise instruction on the return of Christ in all of the Bible. And we could read these things and we could look at our world and we could become shaken and unsettled. And in fact, in my personal experience with those so-called Bible prophecy experts, by the time you get to the end of their presentations, you're anything but settled. You with me? You're like, oh no, what's happening? It doesn't bring any sense of being unshaken. It doesn't bring any sense of being not alarmed. Friend, the purpose behind the Bible's teaching on the return of Christ is that we would be confident, that we would be settled, that we would not be quickly shaken or alarmed about the future, that we would be 
settled in hope. And I just want to be gut level with, honest with you for a moment. That's the furthest thing I'm hearing and seeing from many Christians today. They are not settled. They're not unshaken. But they are alarmed. I see many Christians who are not confident in their faith. They're fearful. My prayer as we enter this expositional verse-by-verse series through 2 Thessalonians, as we conclude it, we would be settled in hope. As we go through this study, here's another encouragement I have for you. I would encourage you to read through the entire letter every day. It's only three chapters. This past week, I probably read through all three chapters at least 10 times, and I read it in different ways. I read it out loud. I read it, read it silently at a really, really brisk pace. One day when I was frying my eggs and sausage, I listened to Kristen Getty read it to me with her Irish accent on my Bible app. <laughs> I read it a lot of different ways. When I read it out loud at a moderate pace, it took me about four and a half minutes to read it out loud. When I read it silently, it took me just over three minutes to read it. So here's what I'm asking you. If you commit just five minutes a day to read these three chapters, after 12 weeks, we will have read through it 84 times. What kind of a handle on the content of this letter would we have if we'd simply read it? So would you do that? think about doing that with me? As we read this, today we're going to consider the introduction of this letter of 2 Thessalonians. And I pulled my title right from the passage itself, Growing Abundantly. So look with me in your Bibles or in the Bible study outline as we look at the first four verses of this timely letter. The Bible says this, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. The letters of Paul feature really a significant and surprising amount of what we might call the doctrine or the theology of boasting. Throughout Paul's letters, he mentions several times on several occasions things that he boasts about, things that he's bragging about. For instance, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, notice what Paul boasts in. He says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world was, has been crucified to me and I to the world. And then also notice in, in Corinthians, uh, Paul boasts, he's actually bragging and taking bragging advice from Jeremiah the prophet, which says this, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What we boast about, particularly as Christians, what we brag about reveals a lot about our priorities. It reveals a lot about what we deem as important. You know, there are churches all across our country who brag and boast about all kinds of things. Some boast about their buildings. Some boast about the quality of their music. Some boast about the dynamic personality of their preachers. Some boast about their numerical size. There's a magazine called Outreach Magazine, and every year they publish a list, actually two lists, 
One list is the world is the nation's fastest growing churches in America, and the other list is the largest churches in America. You might be surprised to know we've not made either of those lists. But there could even be churches like ours that we hold firm to biblical fidelity and we can boast about things. We could boast about things like our doctrinal purity. We can boast about our commitment to world missions. We can boast about having sound biblical leadership. And in reality, none of those things are really bad. Buildings, budgets, bodies, biblical fidelity. None of those things are bad. But what is it that Paul brags about this church in Thessalonica to other churches? As he's going around different regions of the world and he's preaching and he's ministering and he's laying the foundation for the church itself, he's bragging on this church in Thessalonica. What does he brag on them about? Look again at verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you. Where does he boast? In the churches of God. Here's why he boasts on them. For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Lord willing, by the end of this message and even further by the end of this series, we will understand what it means how this tiny church could have such a huge reputation of faithfulness to the Lord, even in the midst of hardship, even through the deep valley of affliction. And would to God that we would be that kind of a people. There are two main things I want to point out from the introduction of this letter as we embark on this study verse by verse through 2 Thessalonians. The first I would point out is this. Number one, I want us to think about his personal greeting. Paul's personal greeting. We often tend to skip over greetings in letters. We know they're necessary and we know they're important to some degree, but, but they don't really have a whole lot of substance to them. At least we don't think they do, but that's certainly not the case with Paul's greetings in all of his epistles and all of his letters. They, they're significant truths that he communicates just by his, hello, how you doing? He communicates these profound things. You see, between the years of 49 and 51 AD, the Lord Jesus Christ in the power of his spirit did a powerful work in that region through the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey. It was on Paul's second missionary journey that he traveled through this northern Macedonian city known as Thessalonica. And the Bible records for us in Acts chapter 17 a summary of all that happened while he was with them there. After he left Thessalonica, he he had established a church there. We'll call it Thessalonica Baptist Church. He established this church there. Then he goes down through Athens and finally into Corinth. Now, this practice of establishing a church shows us the vital importance of Christian community, shows us the vital importance of having a community of faith. But shortly after that church began, they began to experience intense persecution Vicious, hostile uh, atrocities were being committed against them, so much so that Paul himself was forced to leave, and he left Timothy and Silvanus there. After some time, when Timothy and Silvanus had been there, they come and they join back up with Paul down in Corinth, and they bring word to Paul about how this fledgling congregation is doing, especially amidst this severe persecution. And that's what prompted 1 Thessalonians. So Paul, after Timothy and Sylvanus come to him, they give him the report. He says, well, I'm going to write and tell them how thankful I am for them. And he writes 1 Thessalonians. And then he receives, probably within a matter of months, a response to his correspondence. And what we read in 2 Thessalonians is 
Paul responding to their correspondence. And so they're sharing some questions they have about teaching on the end times. They're also sharing some difficulties they're having. And so this is really what Paul's letter is about. When this personal greeting, as Paul really is setting up his whole response to them, there's several things I want us to consider. First of all, consider your source. Consider your source. He says something very specific and very important about God. He tells us that God is our Father. He says, to the church of Thessalonians, in God our Father. Now, we looked at the importance of fatherhood last week, and I told you that God's design for human fatherhood is that we as fathers might reflect and we might emulate the character and the qualities of the fatherhood of God. This term father means origin. It means source. So God is our source in that God is our father. What I would point out here particularly is the nuance of how Paul describes this here in 2 Thessalonians. In fact, look at the next slide. Look at the difference between his first verse of 1 Thessalonians and the first verse of 2 Thessalonians. Only one word different. 1 Thessalonians 1.1, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1.1, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See the difference? It's just one word, but a profound difference. See, by saying that God is the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he's particularly drawing attention to the triune nature of God, that God is the Father of his one and only, only begotten, unique Son of God, Jesus. And just like in 1 Thessalonians, here in 2 Thessalonians, Paul will talk about the third person of the Trinity a little bit later in chapter 1, the Holy Spirit. And so he's directing our minds to the triune nature of God. But he begins this letter a little differently. He writes to the Thessalonians, and by extension, he's writing to all Christians today, which would be those who are gathered in this place. And he says, to this church, in God our Father. You see that? This is profound. This is powerful. He's doing something that Jesus told his disciples to do. You remember when the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, would you teach us to pray? And Jesus said, yes, I will. When you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven. He draws our attention to the fatherhood of God, this unique privilege that we have as believers in Jesus to address God as Father. And the Apostle Paul is wanting to hold this same truth before their eyes. God is your source. God is your origin. God is your Father. So consider your source. Secondly, I point out from this personal greeting, consider your Savior. He mentions it not once, but twice, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is the standard Pauline way of describing Jesus. Those three words he puts together, Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a powerful uh, amount of theology packed into those three words. I want to consider these three words real quickly. First of all, the word Lord. It's the Greek word kurios. Interestingly, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, this word kurios, or Lord, was always the word that was used to translate the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, or Jehovah, as we might say it. Yahweh, Jehovah, Lord. So what is Paul saying here by saying the Lord Jesus Christ? 
He's saying that Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is divine. We can't miss this aspect of the nature of Christ. Jesus has always existed. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is forever. Jesus is God. This is the divine name. But what about this precious name, Jesus itself? And when we get to this Advent series in December, the first message we've got lined up is whenever the angel Gabriel comes, Gabriel comes to Joseph and comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a baby. And then he says, here's what you to name this child. You're going to name him Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. This is Jesus. The word Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua. Yeshua, Yah for Yahweh, Yahshua. Yah means God. Shua means to help or to save. So literally the name Jesus means God saves. See that? So here Paul is saying a powerful amount of theology. Number one, Jesus is God. He's Lord. Number two, he is Savior. Then he uses this third word, Christ. What is that? That's not Jesus' last name like Smith or Brown. Christ is his title. It's the Greek equivalent of what we would call Messiah. What is the Messiah? The Messiah is the anointed one. The Messiah is the long-predicted and prophesied deliverer of God's people. And so by saying that Jesus is the Lord, he's God, he's Jesus, he is the only one who can save us from our sins, and he is Christ, he's the long-predicted and long-awaited Messiah. This is Jesus. So Paul says, consider your source. Consider your Savior. Thirdly, consider your status. Consider your status. Look at this interesting phrase in verse 1. He's writing to the church of Thessalonians, and he says, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know if you're familiar with Pauline writing, he uses this kind of combination over and over again. In Christ, in Jesus, in God. But this is a powerful reality. This morning, we could say we are in Chattanooga, right? You're in church. You're in your seat. You're in your clothes. Paul is saying there's a much more significant aspect about your status. Believer in Jesus, you are in God. This is profound. The point being is that even if you find yourself in Thessalonica, if you find yourself in Chattanooga, with all the difficulties and the hostilities that abound, he's saying, raise your gaze. Look a little higher. This is not your ultimate address. You're not just in Chattanooga. You're not just in Lookout Valley. You're not just in Thessalonica. Christian, you are in God. There is a union with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus prayed a similar thing in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He prayed for them and also for us by extension of their proclamation. Notice what he prayed beginning of verse 20. Jesus said, I do not ask for these only, but, for, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Notice the union we have with God. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Christian, the most significant reality about your identity, about your status today, is not your human nationality. It's not your family line or heritage. It's that you are in God. In God. What a glorious truth of our union with God. Fourthly, I want us to consider our supply. Consider your supply. Where did this church in Thessalonica that was systematically being hunted down and persecuted by the people in that city, where did they get the strength to stand? Notice what he says. His answer is in this little phrase in verse 2. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They got their supply to stand, to be faithful, to be steadfast from the grace and peace of God. First, let's think about the grace of God. What does that involve? What does that entail? At the very least, it involves God's pardon and God's power. By grace, you are saved. That's God's pardon. That's his forgiveness for our sins. None of us, in and of ourselves, have the capacity to become right with God, to to get acquittal from God because of our sinfulness against him. God's grace definitively displayed on the cross of Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection. That is how we are saved, how we are pardoned. But also grace is power. How do we live holy lives? How do we live in this society and not be easily shaken? How do we become settled in hope? For instance, only through the power of God that is distributed by his grace. God supplies this grace, and further, God supplies peace. Peace from God, the peace of God. Friends, it's not just the absence of worldly conflict. It's much deeper than this. Peace from God is total confidence about the future. You know, I know particularly as we are in this season of prolonged uncertainty, this extended time of ups and downs, anxiety among people is off the charts. Just this week, I was speaking with a Christian counselor who says, I'm overbooked and overwhelmed. This season we're in right now finds counselors, therapists, mental health professionals overbooked and overwhelmed. Why? such a lack of peace. And while those counselors and those therapists are certainly helpful in helping us identify the source of our anxieties and what's going on on the inside, since there's only one answer to the anxiety we have, the peace of God. The peace of God. How were these Christians in Thessalonica able to withstand such hostility? Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, after laying this robust theological foundation in just his personal greeting, I want us to consider this second reality from this introduction. Number two, a profound gratitude. See, what Paul begins to do in verses three and four is he begins to offer gratitude for God. Gratitude 
to God for all that is happening in the lives of these young Christians. And I wonder, as we think about gratitude, as we think about thanksgiving, what are you regularly thankful for? What are you regularly thankful for? This week, I looked at the extended forecast, 10-day outlook. And once this rain moves out, the forecast says we're going to have highs in the mid-70s and lows in the mid-50s. My favorite time of year. And I said, thank you, God, for relief from the summer heat, <laughs> right? But what are you thankful for? You're thankful that your team won yesterday? I'm not. <laughs> are you thankful that, that though many around us are suffering physically, you're pretty healthy? Are you thankful that though there is global unrest, you have a sense of security? Our thankfulness and what we're thankful for is a major part of the Christian life. I want us to give attention to Paul's thankfulness here because, my goodness, he is a thankful brother. He is a thankful brother. I want us to see three things about this profound gratitude that Paul offers to God. First of all, I want us to think about the rightness of thanksgiving. The rightness of thanksgiving. He says in verse 3, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. And in case you didn't get it, as is right. Thanksgiving is right. It's almost as if Paul's saying, I'm under obligation. I am morally required to be thankful, to give thanksgiving to God. It's not that he's just delighted to give thanks. He has an oughtness to his thanks. But why would Paul point this out? Why would Paul say, we, we, that's all of us, ought always to give thanks? Why is that? I want to show you this, what I believe will be a powerfully helpful truth. Look at this next slide. It's not on your outline. You might want to write this down. Thanksgiving is a weapon God gives us to fight discontentment. Thanksgiving, being grateful to God, is a weapon he gives us in our spiritual arsenal to fight discontentment. What is discontentment? Discontentment in life flows from not having the things we want to have, not having the things we'd like to have. Discontentment grows when we think, you know, we really ought to have this type of an experience or this type of a possession or this type of a status. You know, in our world today, in North America, in the United States, we can bemoan the welfare system that has created this sense of entitlement. We've heard of those, right? Entitlements. Here's what discontentment is. It's being entitled. It's a sense of entitlement. Well, I ought to have this. I mean, I ought to have that. I mean, doggone, I've worked my whole life. I ought to have this. And discontentment grows when those things we think we're entitled to don't materialize. We become discontent. Or it can be the other way around. Not only not having the positive things we think we're entitled to creates discontentment, but when we have negative things in our life, we think shouldn't be here. If you have a crummy boss who's always on you with his thumb, if you have a coworker who's not carrying their weight, if we have health issues that are nagging, car that's always breaking down, we can grow discontent, not only because we don't have the things we think we ought to have, 
But because we got all these negative things that we think, they shouldn't be in my life. After all, I'm a Christian. I'm blessed and highly favored. Right? So how do you fight discontentment? You know how discontentment normally manifests itself in our lives? Complaining. Complaining. If you are particularly given over to complain, if you have a tendency to gripe about situations, experiences, relationships, that's a sure sign of discontentment. How do you fight that? Thanksgiving. Being grateful to God. Think about this. Friends, if we were to take all of us in this room on this rainy Sunday morning, and we were to take all the reasons we think we have a right to complain, all the reasons we think we have this ought-tos that we're not getting, we took all those reasons that we have collectively, we put them on a list, they would not match in number the number of reasons Paul had to complain. They would not come close to the hostilities, the difficulties, the beatings, the trials, the loss, the weight of responsibility he had on his life. And Paul says, brothers and sisters, we ought always to be thankful. We've got no reason to complain. We've got no reason to gripe. Thanksgiving is a strategic weapon to fight discontentment. I've heard it in pastoral ministry. If somebody's single, they think they ought to be married. If somebody's married and childless, they think they ought to have children. If somebody's married and with children, they think they ought to have the beautiful, well-behaved children they see everybody post on Instagram, not these snotty-nosed brats, right? We always have these ought-tos. You've got to fight that discontentment with real, honest-to-goodness gratitude. There's a little tune Amy and I would sing to our children when they were little. And uh, it, it's silly, but it's profound. We'd sing this. Are you humbly grateful or grumbly hateful? What's your attitude? Do you grumble and groan or let it be known you're thankful for all God's done for you? Kids love to hear this, sing that song to them. <laughs> But this is the truth. Are you grumbly hateful? Or are you humbly grateful for all God's done for us? Paul talks about the rightness of thanksgiving. It's a weapon to fight discontentment. Then he talks about the reasons for thanksgiving. What is it specifically that Paul is thankful for in this church? Look at the second half of verse 3. We ought to give thanks to God, he says, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Paul is thankful for the evidences of God's grace in the Thessalonian church. And in particular, he notices two things to give thanks to God for in them. One, their faith is growing. Two, their love is increasing. Their faith is growing. Their love is increasing. You go back to the upper room discourse uh, the, that the Lord Jesus gave to his disciples. He started that off in chapter 14, verse 1, by saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. What is that? Growing in faith. And then you go a little further down, what does he say? He says, here's the commandment I give to you. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
increase in your love for each other. Grow in your faith in God. Increase in your love for one another. In fact, you flip over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul prays a prayer for this Thessalonian church in verses 11 through 13. You know what he prays for? He prays that they would grow in their faith and they would increase in their love. And then he comes here to 2 Thessalonians. It's almost like you say, my prayers have been answered. I'm hearing a report. You're growing in your faith and you're increasing in your love for one another. And don't you love the way he uses the phrase to describe the increase of their love? He says, the love of every single one of you is for one another is increasing. He's saying, I'm hearing reports. We don't know how many were in this church. 20, 50, 100. He said, I'm hearing. I hear about Brother John and Sister Hazel. Oh, that's a band. We, I'm hearing about all these people in your church, and they are increasing individually in their love for one another. These are the reasons Paul is thankful. I asked you earlier, what are you thankful for? Are you thankful for seeing these evidences of grace in your spiritual family? Lord, I'm so thankful that people in our church are growing in their faith. I'm so thankful that the members of our spiritual family, we are family, welcome home, are growing more and more in their practical expressions of love for one another. The third thing he does is what we've already looked at, and that is the response to thanksgiving. I talked about this at the beginning, the response to thanksgiving. God was doing such a work in them and through them that Paul is bragging on them to other churches. Look again at verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions in the afflictions that you are Enduring. Paul's bragging on this tiny church because of their growing faith and increasing love, even in the midst of afflictions and trials and troubles and persecutions. And friends, we may not be able to identify personally with all that's happening to them here, but we can hear reports even today of this same thing happening. Over the last 20 years, in the nation of Afghanistan, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ was growing there at the second fastest rate in the world. Incredible, explosive growth of the gospel among the people in the Afghan nation. But now we're hearing reports of them dying for their faith. They're being systematically hunted down and being executed. I read an article just about every other day of such experiences as believers in Afghanistan are sending text messages to missionaries and brothers and sisters about their, all that they're enduring. One such text message I read this week was from a pastor in Kabul, simply known as Pastor X, and he gave testimony of one of his new believers in the church there in Kabul. Notice what he texted to a missionary partner. The pastor says, one believer who received Christ six months ago and who was part of the church in Kabul, got killed this morning because Bible app was found in his phone. The believer went outside in search of food, but never came back to his family. He was shot multiple times. The believer's last words were, 
I cannot wait to see you, Jesus. This is one of hundreds and hundreds of testimonies coming out of that country at this time among Christians. We could respond a couple of ways. We could respond in anger. (laughs) How could the political policies and practices of our government lead to this kind of thing? But I believe that's ultimately unhelpful. Here's how we could respond. Lord Jesus, may I have the same faith that this brother of only six months had. May I have the same confidence and be settled in hope. I'm going to see Jesus again. I'm going to see him face to face. Either by death or by his return, I will see Jesus. There's more and more pressure on believers in this country even to deny the Lord, to deny His Word. How do you fight that? You fight that with a faith that's growing abundantly in Christian community, a love for one another that is increasing, and by using the weapon God has given us against discontentment. Well, I ought to have this. No. Fight that with thanksgiving. And that leads to my last thought, and it's really a quote from 1 John 5, 4. How can we be settled, settled in hope? This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith.